Are you ready for a little deja vu? For President Trump, my advice is simple. You've run a very smart campaign. You never back down. But now the focus should almost exclusively shift to the general election. The Democrats are going to stop at nothing. They see this train coming down the track and they want to derail it. And if they can, they're going to game the system or, yeah, maybe even cheat. Whoa, what now? That was not Fox's Laura Ingram in December of 2020. That was Fox host Laura Ingram this week, January, the year 2024. Despite no evidence of election fraud last time around and having to pay $787 million to settle a defamation case based on their 2020 election lies, Fox appears to be priming their audience once again to believe that if Donald Trump loses in 2024, it's because the Democrats cheated. They are normalizing the completely false idea that American elections are rigged. And it is not just Laura Ingram. Now, turning to Joe Biden and what we are hearing from voters on the ground in Iowa, about a third of Iowa Republicans say Joe Biden was legitimately elected president. But almost half, almost double that, I should say, double that amount, say that he was not. And next up, we asked about the integrity of our elections. And and up next, moving on, no fact checks necessary. If you thought Joe Biden was not legitimately elected as president, well, then you're in good company. Multiple times on Monday night, Fox's version of Steve Kornacki, no khakis, mentioned that two-thirds of the Republican caucus goers in Iowa believe that the 2020 election was stolen. And then Fox just moved on to the next thing. No mention that that belief is in defiance of reality. After the attack on the Capitol on January 6th, there was a moment when it really felt like Republicans might finally ditch Donald Trump. Fox News owner Rupert Murdoch said he wanted to make Trump a non-person, which sounds severe. The Republican leader in the House, Kevin McCarthy, discussed removing Trump from office using the 25th Amendment. and He planned to ask Trump to resign. The leader of the Republicans in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, said stuff like this. It was a violent insurrection for the purpose of trying to prevent the peaceful transfer of power. There's no question, none, that President Trump is practically and morally responsible for provoking the events of the day. Cut to today. Mitch McConnell is one of the signatories of an amicus brief before the Supreme Court saying that Trump should not be taken off the ballot in Colorado for his role in January 6th. The new Republican leader in the House, Mike Johnson, is also a signatory, as are nearly 200 Republican members of Congress, 42 of them senators. Among the things these senators and representatives argue in this brief on Trump's behalf is that the Colorado Supreme Court's opinion so broadly interpreted engage in that it sailed right past President Trump's repeated statements to his supporters, both before the breach of the Capitol and after it was breached, telling them to act peacefully, and that he later told them via video to go home now. It is hard to imagine an actual insurrectionist quickly asking for peace and encouraging disbandment. It is really quite an argument given where we were this time in January three years ago. 
And the language in that Republican amicus brief almost exactly mirrors the language in the brief that Donald Trump and his lawyers filed before the court in the same case just a few hours ago. In that filing, Trump argues that he wasn't responsible for what happened on January 6th at all. Nothing that President Trump did in response to the 2020 election or on January 6, 2021, even remotely qualifies as insurrection. President Trump's words that day called for peaceful and patriotic protest and respect for law and order. The Colorado Supreme Court faulted President Trump for, in its view, failing to respond with alacrity when he learned that the Capitol had been breached. But even if that were true, and it isn't, a mere failure to act would not constitute engagement. In insurrection. Just as a footnote here, ABC News reported last week that former Trump White House Chief of Staff Dan Scavino told Jack Smith that as violence began to escalate on January 6th, Trump was just not interested in doing more to stop it. Just a footnote. The statements in Trump's filing here are all in direct conflict with all the information we have, the hours of testimony, the deep investigations into January 6th. What is being presented here is alternative history from a parallel universe, and nearly 200 Republican members of Congress essentially just co-signed it. Now, the Supreme Court is going to hear arguments next month about this 14th Amendment case and whether Donald Trump can actually stay on the ballot. But the larger battle here over what happened at the Capitol and who is responsible Well, today we also got major news that may help Trump avoid or at least delay accountability for his actions in and around January 6th. Today, the judge in the federal election interference case, Judge Tanya Chutkin, signaled in a filing that Trump's claims of presidential immunity may actually push back his trial date. We already knew that the case was on hold until Trump's question of immunity made its way through the appeals court and the Supreme Court. But today, Judge Chutkin signaled that when the appeals process is done, she may set a new schedule, one that takes into account the delays, meaning Trump's March 4th federal election interference trial. A big date as far as Trump's potential criminal accountability is now, for the first time, being questioned by the judge presiding over it. Joining me now are Melissa Murray, professor of law at NYU and former law clerk to Judge Sonia Sotomayor and Michael Schmidt, investigative reporter for The New York Times covering Washington. It is great to see both of you. Thank you for being here on set with me. Um, Melissa, let me just first get your reaction to these legal filings, both on Trump's behalf and uh, a number of representatives in the upper and lower chambers uh, of, of the U.S. Congress. Trump did not engage in insurrection. Uh, This is from Trump's lawyers. In fact, the opposite is true. Um, And telling supporters to fight like hell is not an insurrection either. That's, let me say, that's from Trump's filing, not the amicus brief. Um, What your assessment of them? Well, both parties are singing from the same hymnal. And what we're getting here is not necessarily a new set of substantive arguments Mm -hmm. about why Donald Trump should be immune from prosecution or why Donald Trump should be allowed to be on the ballot in Colorado. But we are getting the notion that this Republican Party is all in league behind Donald Trump. So there's a kind of symbolism to this amicus brief. It's not ground shaking. It's not earth shattering in terms of the argument it's making. It's actually quite predictable. Mm -hmm. But it shows that this party is in lockstep behind this leader. And so now we know this yeah. is where they're going. It's beyond an endorsement. It's beyond pledging allegiance. It feels like 
a complete capitulation to the alt-reality that Trump has sort of encircled himself It's with. a remaking of history, again, a sort of recasting of history in which Donald Trump is not a participant in an insurrection, but a sober, resolute leader who just watched this happen and did his best, his you know level best to stop it. But we have evidence that that was actually not the case. So again, it's an alternate reality, and this is an attempt to remake history. Um, Michael, I'm 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 reminded of the Michael Cohen case when when we hear about the way Trump's defense sort of reinterprets his words. You know, fight like hell is just you know urging his supporters to be in you know engaged in the American elect- election process. It's it's this. I don't. I wonder if you see it this way. I, it it feels like um, you know Trump gets right up to the line without you know, explicitly suggesting criminal behavior. And it's something he's done repeatedly in his professional life. I think I understand why we give the legal arguments a lot of weight and a lot of, you know, and they're really in our face and we can see them. I think there's even something more significant, though, is that the country and this trial is really on the clock. And the closer that we get to the election, the more likely it is to not happen. And if that trial doesn't happen, then the real question is that why was there the delay? Why did the Justice Department start the investigation on January 6th at the bottom up? Mm -hmm. Because that delay will be all the more important historically if this trial does not happen before the election. And this trial is the most likely one to happen when you look at them. But if you look and and I'm, I'm not a legal expert and tell me if I'm wrong, but if you look at this, this could easily get appealed, you know, to the larger appeals court or, you know, on bonk, and then it could go to the Supreme Court. So if that happens, you will have a situation in which a president of the United States engaged in this effort to overturn the election. Um, he was never put on trial in the four years and was able to essentially run again for his freedom without ever going on trial. And that is a, that is a possibility. That's a real, like, I'm not like, I don't think I'm being too hyperbolic. No, that's not hyperbolic at all. I mean, we've said this from the beginning. I've said this on this network and elsewhere. The fact that we were even in the D.C. Circuit arguing about presidential immunity was a tactical victory for Donald Trump because it meant that there would very likely be a delay and this trial would not start on March 4th. The bigger question with this Republican Party, I think, is like, why are you lined up behind this person? And I think Mike is right. Um, they're lined up behind him because he is the presumptive nominee and he's basically running his for his freedom. He has nothing to lose at this point and neither do they. Do you think it's something more pernicious, though? And I would ask this question of both of you, that they sort of look at the landscape, right? They look at the levers that Trump has to pull, whether it's asking for an on-bank hearing, whether it's appealing to the Supreme Court, knowing the speed with which the court moves on some of these things and saying, you know what? He's going to there's no way he's going to be in a jail cell before the election. He's probably he may not even be convicted. If he is, he'll be in the appeals process. He won't be incarcerated while he's in the appeals process. He very well may be the next nominee. So let's line up behind him and let's get on board with his reality. I mean, do you think legally speaking, I mean, as you look at the calendar, Melissa, how optimistic are you about accountability? I'm getting less optimistic as the days go by. But I have to say, a lot of this is in the courts, too. I mean, I'm actually surprised that that three-judge panel of the D.C. Circuit hasn't rendered a decision at this point because it seemed pretty clear from oral arguments how many of these arguments in Donald Trump's favor were not only stupid but specious, right? So 
there, there is definitely a way forward. They all seemed very skeptical of this. I'm, I'm surprised that it's now the eve of the weekend and we still don't have a decision there, which, again, more and more delay. And as Mike says, there are plenty of different avenues that this could go and it could require an en banc hearing and then a petition to the Supreme Court. We're fritting away time at this point, and that's in Donald Trump's favor. And John Shutkin realizes that, which yes. is why we got what we got from her today. Um, Mike, the, you know, in the meantime, as this is happening, Trump is engaging in, I think it's sort of like, it's a legal strategy, but it's a political strategy more than anything else. The tweets, 2 a.m., they're not tweets anymore. They're truths, yeah. but I don't want to call them the capital T truths, uh, truth social posts, um, suggesting that presidents who cross the line should get total immunity. First of all, let's just take a moment to absorb what a former president and would-be president, again, is suggesting here, explicitly, publicly, presidents who cross the line should get total immunity. I, I wonder what you think of these missives and how indicative they are of intention. Intention, but also intention of how he would rule. I mean, I don't That's think there's I, yes. really a question about how he would view presidential power if he were to come back. And I think it took him a long time up basically up until the last few months of his administration to really figure out how to do it. But I think by the end, he had it figured out and he had gotten rid of all of the John Kelly's and Don McGann's and, you know, you know, folks who were standing in his way. So so he comes at it with uh, telling everyone exactly what he wants to do, but also knowing how to do it. He yeah. didn't know how to do this like at first. And if you look at his his moves in the first few years, um, he, he wasn't nearly as successful as he was in that final part where he put all of his time, energy and power behind it. Well, and I would argue also, Michael, he wasn't as I mean, he's always been mad at the deep state. But given sort of the the, the he's been taken to the cleaners uh, in terms of criminal liability, 91 felony counts. His rage is unbound in a way. It is directed at the system of justice in a way that it wasn't. I mean, he was always mad generally at the bureaucracy, but it is focused like a laser on those who would hold him accountable in a way that it wasn't when he was president. And I think, and I don't know what you think, that is terrifying for a potential second Trump term. No, the focus is different. I mean, there's I'm sure if you listen to his speeches, there's stuff about the wall and all the other things. But when he ran in 2016, there was like a broader message that he used to, to appeal to his folks. And it wasn't running on vengeance. And the thing that I wonder, you know, with the your political hats on is that is vengeance something that really appeals to voters? Well, I can tell I can, I can tell you definitively, yes, based on his, you know, where he is right now in terms of the Republican nomination. But um, listen, the, num the number of Republican senators, and I focus on senators specifically because the Senate is so critical in all these arguments about immunity, for example, right? Does President Trump need to be convicted in the Senate first for his activities in and around January 6th, the insurrection, before he can face criminal liability? That's what Team Trump is now arguing. And then you see a letter like that, and it suggests to you the Senate's not going to do anything about January 6th ever. We didn't think it was, but holding Trump to account seems like a pipe dream. Well, so Mike's point is a really good one. When Donald Trump started in 2016, it was about trying to work within a still kind of norm-bound understanding of government. But as he proceeded over the course of those four years, those norms really eroded and, and there weren't any checks. And now he's completely unbound. I do think that his base 
understands his vengeance, but vengeance is really just a more accelerated form of grievance, which yeah. he's always been peddling. So it's very familiar in that way. And, you know, there are no norms left. He's eroded all of these checks. Like impeachment is a toothless paper tiger. The press, he is disregarded and discredited. And targets explicitly yes. in these missives. And as you say, the Senate is not going to be a check either. Like he has Congress in his back pocket. He thinks he has the courts in his back pockets. We don't know at this point. So he literally is tyranny forward at this point, And that's what we're proceeding to. He really has all of the makings of a true dictator. When is the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals going to issue this ruling on presidential immunity? TikTok. Are you watching? TikTok. Michael Schmidt, thank you so much. Melissa Murray, please hang around for just a few more moments because there is another very, very high profile legal case that I want to get to. The latest development in one of the criminal indictments down in Fulton County. D.A. Fonnie Willis is now under fire from one of Trump's co-defendants who wants Willis and her entire office disqualified from the prosecution. And today, DA Willis fired back. We're gonna talk about that next. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops, on. TVs, streaming. Game console, console Smart thermostat, set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera, Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators. Now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. It's Monday night. It's Monday, everyone. Happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Ten days ago, one of Donald Trump's co-defendants in the Georgia election interference case threw a bombshell at Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis. Michael Roman, a former Trump campaign official, alleged in a filing without proof that D.A. Willis is involved in an improper romantic relationship with special prosecutor Nathan Wade and that her office has paid Wade an exorbitant sum of money for his services, which he in turn has used to take Fonnie Willis on lavish vacations. All of this without proof. I read it. Because of this alleged conflict of interest, Mr. Roman is requesting that Wade, Willis and her entire office be removed from the criminal case. Now, Michael Roman's filing referred to sealed court records in Mr. Wade's divorce proceedings. And now, Fonnie Willis has been subpoenaed for a deposition in those proceedings. Today, a lawyer representing D.A. Willis filed a motion asking the judge to quash that subpoena, arguing that D.A. Willis has no relevant information to offer in this divorce matter, and adding the subpoena of District Attorney Willis is being sought in an attempt to harass and damage her professional reputation. Defendant, that would be Mr. Wade's ex-wife, has conspired with interested parties in the criminal election interference case, that would be Trump's co-defendants, to use the civil discovery pro process to annoy, embarrass, and oppress District Attorney Willis. Back with me here is Melissa Murray. Melissa, it, it feels like the messiness of Nathan Wade's 
divorce proceeding is a convenient tool for these Trump co-defendants to kind of get their claws in and say, oh, this, this, these, these untoward behaviors are cause for dismissal. What do you make of the timing here? So this is basically the Real Housewives of Atlanta <laughs> version of the Trump immunity argument. I mean, it's a distraction. It's meant to insert a new set of legal proceedings while we try and figure out whether Fonnie Willis has to disclose this or that, have a subpoena, whatever. And it delays the prospect of this Georgia indictment ever going to trial. That's the name of the game here. And to be very clear, I don't know what's going on between D.A. Willis and Nathan Wade, if anything, and none of us do. And there's been no proof offered here. But whatever is happening, it actually doesn't affect the strength of the charges against Donald Trump and any of the co-defendants that were named in that indictment. And no one can dispute that. Yeah. Just to that, the sort of central um, allegation that Fonnie Willis is ensured that her paramour gets paid this exorbitant sum of money that he then uses mm-hmm. to take her on vacations. She has not denied they are in a relationship. She has said that he's gotten paid the same as everybody else in terms of an hourly fee. He's made more money overall because he's had more billable hours. Um, but I do wonder, given the fact that she may be romantically involved with the prosecutor in her case, that the state is paying. Is that, I mean, if you're Judge Scott McAfee here, is is this open and shut in her favor or is there a potential avenue for a problem? So, I mean, it, the optics are terrible if, in fact, there is a romantic relationship and he is billing some exorbitant amount of hours and profiting in some way from this. Like, this should be disclosed if they are, in fact, in a romantic relationship. And I think most people would say that to err on the side of caution, it would be better not to work with someone in, with whom you are in a romantic relationship on a matter that is as high profile as this one. But again, it doesn't undermine the charges that were brought against Donald Trump and his co-defendants. It's just messy. And maybe it's an an ethical problem with regard to how the prosecutor's office is working, but it doesn't necessarily mean there are ethical problems with regard to the charges that they've brought. And I think, again, disaggregating those things is really important here. The optics are bad. It's going to be really tough sledding for Fonnie Willis going forward because of this, but not because of the strength of the charges she brought against. Right. There's going to be a hearing. Some of it's going to be televised. It is going to be messy. I mean, I was surprised to learn that if for whatever reason she is ordered to step down from this case, the entire office, her entire office goes with her. So and as you new people have to come on and get onboarded, which means we're not having this trial until after the election, which do, means we may not have it at all. Do you is it a, is it a foregone conclusion that new people will take it up or is it an open question as to whether new prosecutors would take it? I mean, up? I'm presuming that there may be prosecutors who want to continue this if there is an interim DA who takes this on and may want to continue it, but there may not be. So, I mean, that, too, is part of the tactic here. I mean, it's a really sort of go big or go home kind of tactic, you know, smear this woman, blow up her life, but also blow up this prosecution and maybe blow it up to the point that it doesn't come back. Or at the very least, have a rock to hide under if Trump is convicted and he can say the whole thing was rigged. This is a crooked prosecutor. She was just using this to make money. I do have to ask because The New York Times is reporting today that there has been very heated exchanges between Fonnie Willis's office and Trump's defense team. Um, The New York Times is reporting that some of the attorneys um, have been addressing D.A. Willis and her prosecutors in ways she finds disrespectful. Um, She has said to them via email in the legal community and at the world in the world at large, some people will never be able to respect African-Americans and or women as their equals and counterparts. That is a burden you do not experience. What is your reaction to to this exchange? 
It's not surprising. I mean, I think, um, you know, one way that we might understand the events of January 6th is not simply a riot in favor of Donald Trump and a quote-unquote stolen election, but also a kind of revanchist assault on a changing model of leadership in this country. I mean, you know, we had that happen on January 6th. A week later, we saw Nancy Pelosi as the first woman speaker of the House sign the articles of impeachment against Donald Trump. And then a week after that, we saw Sonia Sotomayor, the first woman of color to serve on the United States Supreme Court, swear in Kamala Harris as the first woman and woman of color to serve as vice president. There's a changing model of leadership in this country, not just in government, but all over corporations, law firms, whatever. And there are some, I think, for whom that changing model is unfamiliar and perhaps a little threatening, and maybe they respond in kind. And there are those who are in those positions of leadership who feel those slights quite acutely. Yeah, I will say that I was in Atlanta, Georgia on January 5th watching Raphael Warnock um, become elected as the first black senator from the state of Georgia, and then January 6th happened. I'm not saying it's causal, but the two are linked in terms of the decline of one group of uh, individuals and the ascension of another. Melissa Murray, always great to see you, my friend. Thanks Thank you. Still ahead tonight, how would how would you best describe the 91 felony counts and multiple civil lawsuits facing the former president and current frontrunner for the Republican presidential nomination? The guy who says he wants to be a dictator on day one in office. Would you call him a little chaotic? <laughs> then I have just a candidate for you. We're going to talk about Nikki Haley's curious campaign strategy. That's next. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win. Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on Podcast Wise is happening author Ari Berman on his new book, Minority Rule, the right-wing attack on the will of the people and the fight to resist it. If we're going to be at a moment in time when so many people are saying we have to understand the Constitution as it was intended, then we have to understand that it was intended to check democracy, not to expand it. And we can have such a view of the Constitution that says that all of these institutions are so amazing when it's so obvious that they made a lot of mistakes and that a lot of it needs to be corrected. That's this week on Why Is This Happening. Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and follow. Heading into the New Hampshire primary in 2016, Donald Trump did not have the endorsement of a single sitting member of Congress. And today, Donald Trump has the endorsement of more than 100 Republican members of the House. He has the endorsement of 25 Republican senators, which means nearly half of all the Republicans in Congress have endorsed Donald Trump. They're all just waving the white flag on this one. At this point, the only thing standing between Trump and total victory over his party is the long-shot candidacy of former South Carolina governor Nikki Haley. But in order to beat Donald Trump, Nikki Haley probably has to run against Donald Trump. For the last year, Governor Haley has offered one canned line whenever she is asked about Trump. I agree with a lot of his policies. But the truth is, rightly or wrongly, Chaos follows him. I agree with a lot of his policies. But the reality is, rightly or wrongly, chaos follows him. 
I agree with a lot of Trump's policies and chaos follows him. Haley is now essentially in a one-on-one battle here. She's being given every opportunity to contrast herself with Trump's increasingly lawless and authoritarian tendencies. So how did she respond today? Donald Trump has said on day one for a day he'll be a dictator. What sort of alarm bells does that ring? And how would you respond if he was in front of you? I mean, look, I voted for Trump twice. I agree with a lot of his policies. I've said it over and over again. Rightly or wrongly, chaos follows him. Nikki Haley was literally asked about something that Donald Trump said he plans to do. To turn America into a dictatorship for a day. And even then, the only critique that she was willing to make of a self-proclaimed would-be dictator was a swipe at his personal shortcomings, which, by the way, may not even be his fault. He's just followed by chaos, rightly or wrongly. To the extent that Nikki Haley had any substantive criticism of her opponent today, this was pretty much it. He needs to answer the question, why does he want to raise the Propose a 25 cent gas tax increase. Why did he put us $8 trillion in debt over four years? I want those questions asked. Get, get him on a debate stage. Those are the issues Haley thinks Trump needs to answer for. The gas tax, the deficit, and a proposal on raising the retirement age that is basically indistinguishable from Haley's own proposal to do the same. Nikki Haley is categorically either unable or unwilling to take Donald Trump on regarding the issues that actually animate the Republican electorate right now, thanks in large part to Donald Trump. The explicit racism, the xenophobia, the misogyny. All of which are issues that Nikki Haley, more than anyone else, is in a position to talk about. She is a woman of color. She is the daughter of immigrants. She was the governor of South Carolina during one of the worst white supremacist attacks in that state's modern history. And she responded to that attack by removing the Confederate flag from the state capitol, recognizing in so doing that symbols of racism were embedded in America's culture and its history and that those symbols needed to be removed. It is a moment tailor-made for Nikki Haley to distinguish herself from the former president, the man who once said of violent white supremacists, there are good people on both sides. And yet, just weeks after failing to identify slavery, as the cause of the Civil War, Nikki Haley went on live television and said this. We're not a racist country, Brian. We've never been a racist country. Our goal is to make sure that today is better than yesterday. Are we perfect? No. But our goal is to always make sure we try and be more perfect every day that we can. Nikki Haley's omissions about slavery and racism may be just errors, but they are probably actually a tacit acknowledgement that whitewashing history and excusing racism are the things that power a sizable portion of the Republican base in the era of Trump, the base whose support she needs to win. We'll talk with David Pluff about whether or not she can actually manage to do just that next. Nikki Haley will never secure the border. I don't know that she's a Democrat, but she's very close. She's far too close for you. I actually think she might go to the Democrat Party. She stabbed the Republican Party in the back by siding with Barack Hussein Obama against the Trump travel ban. That was Donald Trump attacking Nikki Haley at a rally in New Hampshire last night. With five days left until that state's primary, it remains to be seen whether Nikki Haley intends to respond in kind in the next five days or ever. 
Joining me now is David Pluff, campaign manager for Barack Obama's 2008 presidential campaign, President Obama's former White House senior advisor, and the host of the Campaign HQ podcast. So many credentials, David <laughs> Pluff. Um, yeah. I, how are you thinking about this? Nikki Haley is the only thing standing between the Republican Party and tr the Trump abyss. And yet, after attacks like that, some of them are explicitly racial, they're definitely demeaning, and they're, you know, gloves off. We are getting nothing from Nikki Haley, even approaching that level of vo velocity, if you will. For sure. Well, it's, to be clear, I'm campaign manager for Barack Hussein Obama. <laughs> I was almost going to say it, and uh, then I thought, no, so, why give it air? Um, it's, it's actually pretty remarkable to me as a former practitioner. You know, this is one of the most intense weeks in American politics, the, the period between Iowa and New Hampshire. And I'd say Haley's schedule doesn't seem to be particularly frenetic or breakneck. I think the urgency with what she's saying, Trump has to be stopped. It's very weak sauce. Yeah. Um, and I, I assume, you know, they think that there's just too much to be lost by going too negative on Trump. But it's not like you're going to get those voters anyway. It's almost like a football team. You're down like three touchdowns and you're a running team. You're like, well, we're a running team. It's yeah. like, well, if you don't pass, you're going to lose. Right, right. Even though the odds of success aren't great. So that's what I don't understand. Um, you know, I still think it could be relatively close. Like, I think Trump's ceiling in New Hampshire is not 55 or 60. You know, it's probably around 48 to 54. And she'll get most of the rest of that vote. But uh, she's closing here really weakly. Do you have, like, walk, you know, help me look behind the curtain here. Do you feel like on the race stuff, uh, we were, we were playing some sound earlier. She, her, her, reluct her reluctance, her inability to say that the Civil War was, uh, that the root of it was a debate, a fight over slavery. She said America has never been a racist country. These are at odds with positions she staked out earlier in her career as governor. I mean, she took the Confederate flag down from the South Carolina state capitol, right? This woman knows better. Is she doing it because she understands saying racism, acknowledging institutional legacy racism would basically make her would disqualify her with Trump's base? Is yeah. that what it is? And why, as you as you point out, why bother? Like if yeah. she's trying to win the racists, she's never going to. Right. Well, it is such a sad state of where that party is, that that is what she believes. And she's probably right about that. The problem is, though, it looks weak. And, you know, you're just not going to beat Trump right, if you weakness. look weak. And I think ultimately that's going to keep some lid on what she ultimately can get in New Hampshire next week. What is your um, what what as far as I, I have to ask you, because I know you've been vocal about the need to be you said at the beginning of this that she hasn't had a particularly breakneck schedule. There's this idea in American politics that you need to be like you need to be hitting the road. You need to be knocking on doors. You need to be doing the retail stuff. You need to be in voters faces. Trump won Iowa without doing any of that. Certainly he had a ground game, but he's really nationalized American politics in a way that no one else has recently. And then you have technology that aids and assists in people understanding who their candidates are in a way that maybe a living room appearance doesn't. And does that render the old model of politics sort of moot? I don't think in a small state like New Hampshire. So I think it, it's definitely changed a lot. And Trump was in such a dominant position, he didn't have to. And by the way, back in 16, one of the reasons he lost to Cruz is Cruz out-hustled him. Yeah. You know, Trump had a pretty lazy schedule. So I think with Haley, you know, she should be doing four to six events a day. But you're cutting great social media content. Like, you're just storytelling all day long. But uh, having been in New Hampshire in 2008, where we lost it, yeah. uh, Hillary really hustled. 
And I think you get rewarded for that. And again, Haley is a long shot right now. And voters particularly want to see long shots doing everything they can to both be making their case and fighting for every vote. And that's not what you get out of there. Again, I don't understand what the point is, because if she doesn't win next Tuesday, she's done. The race is done. Trump's the Republican nominee. The general election starts. Well, David, what about the left behinds, if that is a scenario that it comes to pass, right? Um, I, I don't think a lot of people paid attention to this. When Asa Hutchinson dropped out of this race, Asa Hutchinson, who many Asa Hutchinson supporters forgot was still in the race, um, the DNC released a kind of snarky statement saying <clears throat> his 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 um, his retirement, if you will, was a shock to those of us who could have sworn he had already dropped out. The Biden campaign I think it was the White House, then apologized to Asa Hutchinson, saying the president knows Asa Hutchinson to be a man of principle who cares about our country and has a strong record of public service. Uh, Jeff Zients, the uh, chief of staff, called the governor to convey this and apologized for this DNC statement. That's certainly, um, you know, playing to everyone's better angels and, and like raising the bar on how we treat each other. But I wonder if it's also tacitly a play for all of these Republicans who don't want Donald Trump, who are opposed to Donald Trump and who Biden is going to need come come November. Absolutely. I mean, this has to be a coalition, an uneasy coalition put together, including the last, let's say, four to five percent of Biden's ultimate vote share to win are going to be people who disagree with him on just about everything else under the sun. And we all have to say, you know what, in this moment, we're going to come together so we can save the country. And then we can go back to fighting about tax rates and who gets health care and who doesn't and public education and all the things that used to be a part of politics. So anybody, even if they're just arch conservative, but for whatever reason, they're saying Trump's gone too far and he will destroy democracy and become an autocrat and a dictator. If they're willing to be in the car with you, you got to let them in. Wow. That is it is getting to be a crowded (laughs) car, David Pluff. And just wait till like Nikki Haley's New Hampshire supporters are being invited for a ride. Um, It's going to be a weird year. David Pluff, thank you for joining me tonight. I appreciate it. We have one more story for you tonight. What Benjamin Netanyahu said today and why it is in direct opposition to the American position on how to end the war between Israel and Hamas. That is next. These are new satellite images out of Gaza that showed the staggering number of displaced civilians wedged into the southern city of Rafah since the October 7th Hamas terror attacks. The highlighted areas show the explosion of tent cities where there is little to no access to food or clean water. This week, U.N. officials warned that famine across Gaza is imminent. The World Health Organization predicts that the death toll from sickness and starvation could eclipse the number of people killed in the war which, according to the Palestinian Health Ministry, is more than 24,600 people, 10,000 of which are children so far. As it stands, 132 hostages from Israel are still being held by Hamas inside Gaza, 27 of whom, Israel says, are no longer alive. What is happening inside Gaza right now is already apocalyptic, but the end of this war is nowhere in sight. The U.S. has continuously pushed for a two-state solution as a means to end this conflict. But today, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu rejected that notion outright. This was the response from the U.S. State Department. 
There is no way to solve their long-term challenges to provide lasting security, and there is no way to, to solve the short-term challenges of rebuilding Gaza and establishing governance in Gaza and providing security for Gaza without the establishment of a Palestinian state. Joining me now is Eamon Mohadeen, host of Eamon, which of course airs weekend nights on MSNBC. Eamon, it feels like a, a, it, like a very circular argument that's happening here. The U.S. is pushing for a two-state solution. Netanyahu is dismissing that as a possibility out of hand. What are people even negotiating about at this point? Well, I mean, to be quite honest, there's not much negotiations yeah. uh, taking place on the big picture issue, on the comprehensive issues, if you will. Um, what we're seeing right now are kind of low-level negotiations taking place on uh, getting medicine into Gaza, trying to get more aid trucks into Gaza, trying to secure some access to the hostages. Um, we're very far away removed from conversations around a two-state solution. But what was interesting today about what Netanyahu said, it's not that he is now emboldened and defying the U.S. government's stated objectives of having a two-state solution. This has been the implicit policy of the government of Benjamin Netanyahu for forever. years, forever. I mean, he's, he has boasted about this domestically to his political constituents, saying, I have denied and prevented the creation of a Palestinian state. He campaigned on that. So I, I think American officials who are now just kind of waking up to this soundbite today from Netanyahu have either been living in denial or have been ignoring it um, for the sake of political convenience, that they don't have to deal with this or confront this issue head on. I don't. But what is the logic there? I mean, the, first of all, the two leaders, Biden and Netanyahu, haven't spoken in 25 days. Netanyahu is out there is out there explicitly undermining the goal that Americans have laid out, which is a two state solution. And yet, given that senior Biden administration officials tell NBC News, if we took such statements like the one Netanyahu is making as the final word, there would be no humanitarian assistance going into Gaza and no hostages released. We will continue to work, work toward the right outcome, particularly on issues where we strongly disagree. I mean, this isn't some small footnote about how many aid trucks get into Gaza. This is the essence of the conflict itself. This is the ultimate vision of what the United States has for the Middle East, that its ultimate security for the region, ultimate peace rests on this cornerstone of two states for two people uh, with security and peace for both people. The Israeli prime minister is openly defying the largest backer of his government, diplomatically, militarily, financially, and is doing so brazenly, knowing there won't be any consequences either on Capitol Hill or within the American political establishment at large. And to your point about um, just, you know, why? What's the logic behind this? The logic behind this is this right-wing government in Israel, the most extreme in its history, has never believed in a two-state solution. And the fundamental problem is... Um, what Arab governments have told us is the, the hypocrisy of the Americans when they look at the Palestinians and say, your words matter, your language matters. If you do not accept a two-state solution in your rhetoric, even if you believe it in your actions, if you don't acknowledge it rhetorically, you will not receive any support from America and we will denounce your existence as a political representative of the Palestinian people. However, that doesn't apply to Israeli officials who come out and say explicitly, explicitly say we will not work towards a Palestinian state. We will have full control over the river to the sea will be under complete Israeli sovereignty. The very slogans that people in this country are saying, hey, somehow these are genocidal slogans when American college students say them on campus. Somehow when the Israeli prime minister says it about Palestinians, 
American politicians are suddenly quiet and nobody's saying, hey, that sounds like a genocide, uh, a call for genocide when you say there will only be Israeli sovereignty over the entire territory. In the meantime, Eamon, this is increasingly teetering on spreading to a like, direct confrontation with Iran. The regional chaos is spilling over the bo- the, the bombing of the Houthi bases. I, I, and and, and I, I, I really want to get this in here in this news broadcast. All universities in Gaza, 70 percent of the schools have been destroyed. You know, the way to recruit terrorists is to by have, having a population that is disenfranchised, feels no hope, is not educated, right? And, and universities and schools, what are they about? They're about future. Now, Israel says that they were, you know, bastions of tunnels and rockets. But when you put in the numbers that you just outlined— When you destroy a school, when you are destroying a university, you are destroying a future generation of education. That means thousands, tens of thousands of Palestinian kids will not go to school. What do you think happens to those kids who are now ripe for the kind of extremism and the indoctrination and the violence that extremists will uh, will exploit? To their ideology. I mean, it is, it is, Amen. there's so much more to talk about. Thank you, yeah. my friend, for taking a little time this evening. And a reminder that Amen airs weekend nights at 7 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. That is our show for tonight. 